This Week in Startups is brought to you by Gusto, easy online payroll, benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses. Get three months free when you run your first payroll at gusto.com twist. And Skillshare. Join the millions of students learning on Skillshare today. Get two months for just 99 cents. Go to skillshare.com twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. We host this podcast twice a week and have done so for almost a decade. Next year, it'll be 10 years. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm really excited about our next guest because I've been trying to get her on the pod for no less than five years. Uh, Lila Jana is an entrepreneur. She's got a nonprofit and a for-profit. Uh, you've heard, of course, of her nonprofit, Samasource. Um, and you may or may not have heard of LXMI, which she launched back in 2015 or so. Welcome to the program, Lila. Glad to be here. Thanks for having now me. Now, it's Lila. L-I-L-A is how it's pronounced, but it's yes. spelled L-E-I-L-A. I know. Just People think, butcher this constantly, right? Just think not the Eric Clapton version. Not Layla. Yes. You're right. Think Lila, Lila. Garrity from Friday Night Lights. <laughs> I've never watched that, but okay. Uh, <laughs> tell everybody what is Samasaurus and why did you create it? I founded Samasaurus also 10 years ago. Wow, there you go. Yeah. Um, arguably, September 2008 was not the best time to start a nonprofit. <laughs> <in the laughs> or anything. Years or anything. Or maybe it was, because that was when the financial crisis hit. Exactly. And, and we were... had to be disciplined and yes. become profitable. But my my aim when I started Samasource was to create an organization that would move people out of poverty measurably using technology to create jobs. And I was especially interested in Sub-Saharan Africa because I had worked there um, since I was 17. I actually first went and volunteered in, in West Africa. And I became incredibly frustrated by what I see as a very paternalistic aid and charity model that mm. keeps low-income people poor um, by, you know, not really valuing them as producers in the global economy, but sort of seeing them as passive recipients of handouts. And so I was really passionate about ways that the digital economy could empower all of these young people who finish high school and have no job after that, but can read and write beautiful English and are very capable of learning tech skills. I thought, what if we could create a, a massive employment vehicle for them? Hmm. So in 2008, I founded Samasource. Uh, originally, uh, the kind of work that we did um, was basic data entry and outsourcing tasks. Kind of like Mechanical Turk, which had just gotten big at that time. And there were a couple of those like Crowdflower. I think you knew the founder there. Exactly. And some of these folks were, hey, let's see if we can itemize work and make mm -hmm. it. It was kind of the the gig economy, but micro. Exactly. Micro tasks, I think we called we it called back it, then. We called it micro work back then. But yeah. the idea, the insight I had, so I'd, I'd worked as a management consultant right out of out of university. And um, I worked for a big outsourcing firm helping to take them public. Mm. And I met a young man in this giant call center in India, this like super professional call center with like 10,000 people. Um, I met this guy who was commuting in from Dharavi, which is South Asia's largest slum, where mm. Slumdog Millionaire was filmed. Wow. And it dawned on me that if, if this guy could be working in a modern call center, how many more people living in slums that I had been you know, trying to help uh, during my volunteer work as an undergrad, how many more people like him might there be who could actually do work through the internet? Mm. 
Tom Friedman had just written The World is Flat. This was back in 2005, and, and a light bulb went off, and I thought, well, maybe this is the way to connect my two passions. Um, yeah. This is a way to connect technology and giving work with poverty reduction. And it was a slow going in the beginning. It was hard to convince people or find the micro work. Well, the hardest thing was actually raising money. Um, mm. I I had a really steady supply of, of labor, right? There's no shortage of yeah. super talented people who are desperate for opportunity. Um, but initially, people were really biased. I mean, I, he I heard every kind of rejection you could imagine from Sand Hill Road, which is why I ended up incorporating as a nonprofit because I they said- They wouldn't invest in it. Nobody would invest in it. a business model here. People said, well, not only are you like a 25-year-old girl um, who doesn't have a technology background, but then on top of that, you want to build a business in sub-Saharan Africa. At the time where I was looking, East Africa, they hadn't even gotten fiber optic cable yet. Mm. So the internet was slow and expensive. And then on top of that, all those challenges, I not only wanted to build this business, but I wanted to have a business with a social mission that would hire low-income people who would normally not get these jobs. Got it. So the combination of those three factors just made this like the stinkiest deal ever. And no one yeah, wanted nobody to do invest. it. So you're just like, okay, well, if nobody's going to invest, let's make it a nonprofit. Let's make it a nonprofit. And, um, and, and, Funnily enough, I was able to scrounge together some donations um, as a nonprofit, but even the big nonprofit funders didn't want to fund this. They had other uh, challenges. They said, well, poor women in Africa from slums, how could they possibly use computers? Like they're going to need mosquito nets and, you know, clean drinking water before they can do work, which is, again, such a paternalistic concept because people are already working <laughs> to make ends meet. Yeah, they're doing something. They're to, doing something. Yeah. It is interesting how... The West, I think, looks at poor people in some of these emerging countries as like not a being radically different than the human experience in other parts of the world. They're human beings who want to strive mm -hmm. and learn and provide for their families. They're not like incapable of work or learning. And it's so weird. There's um there's a really great TED talk by a, a Nigerian writer named Chimamanda Adichie uh, who writes about the danger of a single story, right? And what happens when we label an entire group of people with with one narrative, which is essentially what the West has done in in Sub-Saharan Africa. We've yeah. labeled this whole population as poor, helpless victims, and you know as much as I think um, the motivation behind big nonprofits like Charity Water is wonderful. Um, I still think that mentality of seeing low-income people in developing countries as primarily the recipient of our charity is deeply problematic. You've since that time had close to 10,000 people employed. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. Over 10,000 agents and their families. So we've now moved about 50,000 people huh. from an average income of about $2.20 a day to over four times that wow. to over $10 a day, which is middle class in Kenya and Uganda, where we do most of our work. It's interesting because I've been inviting you to come onto the show for a while. We've had a hard time booking <laughs> it, but you've been busy and travel. you travel a lot. Um, but I was, I stumbled upon this BBC story uh, and I was like, oh, there she is. I remember her <laughs> and I'm watching the thing. <laughs> and they really were being, I saw the story on BBC and they were like, slum school. And I was like, <laughs> Well, that's the most negative, like, connotation you could take to. Like, there's a slum and they're in school. And how did you feel about that story? Because the story itself, when I watched the video, seemed very positive. Mm -hmm. But the spin on, I guess, you know, maybe it's just the culture we're living in with clickbait, but it seems super clickbaity slash. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, the journalist who did the story is a really bright guy and very thoughtful and took a lot of time to understand our model, you know, traveled to Kenya, sat down, you know, did home visits with our agents to understand the the economic backgrounds we're coming from. But I I think what happens in the editing process is like often real journalism becomes clickbaity. Yeah. um, And that's sadly the world we live in. So the, the headline of the piece just killed me. It was like, why big tech pays poor Kenyans to train AI and um, and you know just the idea of labeling an entire nation of people as as poor yeah there's a descriptor just, it totally it's just Can like you imagine if you were like <laughs> poor Alabama <laughs> totally or you yeah. know poor India my, my parents came here in the late 70s and the narrative of India was like you know in the 50s yeah. British people used to say Indians were lazy and you know probably wouldn't amount to so much once they became Indians are lazy and and now you know fast forward to now and Bill Gates is like there would be no Microsoft if they're you know, wasn't this? Yeah, that's pretty hilarious. So, it's like the Indian founders who I'm in business with as investors, <laughs> they like out hustle me, you know, significantly. Here's just a clip of the video. Um, I guess in this, we're seeing people in Kenya, am I correct? Mm-hmm. Working. I noticed it's a lot of women. Yep, over 50% women. Wow. Okay. So you figured out how to do something that Facebook can't and <laughs> hire women <laughs> to do technical can't. work. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. And I see that there in this video I'll describe for people watching. Uh, it look like 20 something, 30 something women dressed well in front of computers, looking at screens in, you know, a standard office space. And they're identifying uh, what's in this. What looks like self-driving uh, videos. Is that mm-hmm. correct? That's right. They're yeah. training artificial intelligence algorithms with wow. high-quality data. So this is radically different than your original vision, which was, hey, we'll just get them to do data entry or whatever. Look mm-hmm. at these invoices, you know, people's expenses, whatever, mechanical Turks. Now AI needs to be trained. Exactly. And it's it's so funny because like so many startups, you kind of throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks and, yeah. and go with it. And in the early days, I had literally like no money. So I got one contract to digitize text files uh, or digitize PDFs into text files, which can now be entirely done through <laughs> yeah, OCR, OCR software. Yeah, you press but the at button. the time, it was like manual OCR <laughs> because the software wasn't great. And yeah. so there were all these errors. And if you wanted to have an error-free transcript, you needed to hire transcribers. And yeah. so that was our first contract. I remember it was $30,000 and we got it in Ooh, late 2008 and I personally QA'd every single page of the text. <laughs> so Yeah, super glamorous <laughs> being a founder. Yeah. All right, when we get back, I, I want to know what's the next step here. If you have people training the AI, what's, what's next? Because this seems like a large untapped workforce when we get back on This Week in Startups. We use and love Gusto at all of my companies, Launch, Inside. And why do we love it so much? Well, it's just talking to Ashley, who's been our COO and the managing director of our syndicate. And she loves the fact that it is so quick and easy for us to onboard new employees. That process used to be arduous. With Gusto, it is seamless. And they give you persistent and helpful communications on a regular basis about what's going on. And I am on the administrative uh, email addresses so I can see this as the CEO, even though I don't manage it anymore. But I like to see those communications. They're not annoying, but they're persistent and they keep you informed and make sure that you do everything right, including things like your benefits, commuter benefits we started giving, healthcare, dental, vision, all that good stuff. Hey, 401k, 529, which is that awesome uh, tax break you get when you start saving for college and HSA, all the payroll, all the benefits in one place. 
This is what makes Gusto so amazing. Payroll, taxes, and HR is easy. Super easy for your small business. Fast, simple payroll processing. All your benefits in one place. And by the way, they have tremendous support. Chat if you don't like to talk to people on the phone or phone if you don't like to chat. Either one you can do. So now is the best time to get up uh, to get set up. Obviously, the new year is coming, so I don't want you to wait. And listeners of This Week in Startups get an amazing offer. They get three months free when they run their first payroll. Okay, three months free. So I want you to try a demo yourself. I want you to go to gusto, G-U-S-T-O dot com slash twist. Gusto dot com slash twist. I use it. Ashley manages it. We love it. It's very easy for me to read this ad for Gusto because it is the best solution out there for all your HR needs, payroll, benefits, taxes. You want to make it easy and you want to get back to work on your product and you can do that by going to gusto.com slash twist. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. If you enjoy the podcast, great. That's it. I'm not going to ask you for anything. I'm not going to beg you. Uh, I mean, if you want to write a review, that'd be amazing for my mom. But other than that, just enjoy the podcast. If you want to tell your friend about it, that's fine. You can follow us on Twitter at TWI Startups and on the Instagram TWI Startups. And you can follow me. I'm at Jason on Instagram and at Jason on the Twitter. My guest today, Lila Jana, she is the founder and CEO of Some Source. You regret making it a nonprofit? Well, it feels like it could be you, massively profitable right now. It actually is profitable. Oh, we became profitable two years ago. I think we're one of the largest um, companies in terms of revenue in our space right now. Yeah. And so we actually incorporated a for profit subsidiary. Oh, great. So the interesting thing about our structure is now we're a hybrid. We can take in venture capital into the oh, for profit, yeah. but the nonprofit owns the majority of the shares. So I think we'll be one of the few venture-backed companies in Silicon Valley where the majority owner is a nonprofit organization. That's fantastic. Mozilla did this. Mitch Kapoor Mm -hmm. and Ted Leonsis set this up um, uh, for the Mozilla Foundation, which makes, obviously, the Firefox browser. That's right. And I think they make hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue. Mm -hmm. And so the IRS had a little bit of a hard time understanding it, is my understanding. But now the IRS understands it, the sort of dual uh, role. So... You're paying people 10 bucks a day, which is huge, but we're sitting here going, okay, we're here in the land of Silicon Valley, and I guess the criticism, and no good deed goes unpunished, the criticism I guess people are going to have is, oh, you're only paying them 10, and people here are eating, you know, organic chicken at, you know, Google that costs much more or something. Yeah. Why not pay them $50? Yeah. I know the answer because I saw you answer it before, but I'm yeah. answering it. Yeah. So, um, so I actually studied development economics and, yeah. as an undergrad, and I was fascinated with- um, At Harvard? I, don't, <laughs> I did study at Harvard. Um, I mainly went there, though, because they had the best scholarship. So, um, You went there because you're smart, by the way. Just saying I And an overachiever, it. clearly. Um, but I was, I was always curious, you know, how to address this problem of poverty meaningfully and um, did a lot of work on understanding- fair wages. What does it mean to pay someone a fair wage in different parts of the world? And obviously we index wages, right? Because what buys you a standard basket of goods in New York today is very different from 
what that same set of goods would cost you in Nairobi today or mm. in rural Kenya or rural Uganda. So we do indexing. And uh, almost every company in the world indexes salaries, right? Even if you work at Google, you're probably not going to be in the same salary band working in East Africa as you would be you mm. know, here in Mountain View. And there's a reason for that because companies want to adjust for cost of living. And so we uh, determine our wages based on a third-party guide called the Fair Wage Guide, mm. which is developed not by us, but by academics at Berkeley. Mm. And it's a standard for fair trade organizations around the world. So it's a way to say, what is a fair wage in a place like rural Uganda? Mm. And it was originally developed for organizations that were trying to move people out of poverty by teaching them to make things like handicrafts, right? Or uh, for people who want to uh, teach farmers how to increase their cotton yields and get a fair price from cotton markets when they're selling, you know, from rural developing countries. So it's a really helpful guide. And that's the guide that we use as a benchmark. And our salaries are often well above what the fair wage guide recommends as a fair wage in a place. It's also be careful because I know in some countries, they've created this like super upper class where, you know, people started making a magnitude more than what the average pay would be. So if you took a Silicon Valley salary or something and applied it somewhere else, you could screw up the economy there. It would be... Totally. You throw off, yeah. you know, housing prices and, and everything else. And so I think like we did here. <laughs> exactly. I think I think the job of an ethical company is to pay living wages based on where people are working. Mm. And again, you know, relying on third party data, it's not enough to say, well, we think this is a living wage. Um, in our case, you know, we've, we've relied on a third party standard. And we actually went through last year, our first impact audit. Mm. So just the same way that companies can go through a financial audit, we said, well, let's put our impact data that we collect subject to third-party review. Mm. So we hired a team of development economists from Yale to do an impact audit, and we actually published it on our website. Mm. So hopefully that will dispel you know, any concerns. And at the end of the day, I think it helps to know that a, a nonprofit is the primary owner of all of the value that's accruing. Yeah. And so what, what's the next step? Um, we had, was it Lambada School, Jackie? Lambda? Lambda School. Lambda yeah. School. We had Austin from Lambda School on. Yes. He's in Africa. He's awesome. mm -hmm. I'm not sure which country he's in. Might have been Kenya. I'm not sure if he was. I don't know. Yeah. Do you know, remember, Jackie, what city What uh, city or yeah, what country he was operating in? Anyway, um, he's starting to have developers there. Do you see that as the natural extension or do you think there's enough tasks in this sort of training AI for you to stay yeah. busy for a couple more decades? Well, it's interesting to see that we've we've moved up the value chain a lot. You know, 10 years ago, we started doing data entry and then we moved into uh, tagging images, you know, yes. often in very complex ways to train AI. Our first contract doing this was for Microsoft yeah. uh, for the Kinect gaming device. Oh, wow. That's so, a couch. <laughs> exactly. It's a human. That's a hand doing yes. something. Uh, and so we, we became experts in tagging humans doing different activities. Mm. And and now in, in the automotive industry, we've been doing this for the leading companies, you know, in the space for over four years now. Wow. And so we've naturally kind of moved up the complexity value chain. So we're doing work that really can't be done with a crowdsourcing model because you might need somebody to go through months of training or you might want the ah. same person working on this work for years because they want to, you need somebody that has subject matter expertise in a particular type of U.S you know, automotive work. Right. And so um, we already have developed that specialization. And we also have started training developers to do some 
basic kinds of coding on these projects Got and it. customizations of our own platform um, that integrate with client software. Um, going forward, I'd love to see if we can train people to be machine learning experts and data scientists in-house. We've had to build our entire you know, own layer of middle management ourselves because there's not a lot of people graduating from business schools that we can hire to be middle managers. And, and that's the challenge in a lot of emerging markets is that middle management layer that can help you scale an organization. So we've grown that internally. And yeah, because that doesn't exist. Like a technology company that's scaled in Africa, there might not be too many of them. Exactly. Like yeah. I, I just uh, finished reading Reid Hoffman's book, Blitzscaling. Yeah. And, you know, he talks about how at a certain point, startups need to bring in a lot of management because you've just got to you have so many more troops to organize and yeah. get rowing in the same direction. And so one of the biggest challenges for scaling an organization is if you don't have that level of management talent in the labor market. So we grew that ourselves. And I think if you can train someone to be a good manager, you can definitely train them to do all kinds of engineering work. How do local governments look at you? Do they look at you as like some incredible resource or do they look at you and go, hmm, what's the motivation here? Has it changed over time? I think Curious. we're, um, you know, I, I think we're fairly well regarded in East Africa. Mm -hmm. I think people appreciate that we've we've created jobs and uh, we've connected people directly to work for some of the biggest technology companies in the world, like Microsoft and Google. Yeah. And uh, I think we've also created a reputation around deliberately hiring people who would normally not get jobs. Mm -hmm. So we're actually in the middle of a randomized control trial right now with MIT um, to assess what would happen to our agent population that mostly comes from slum backgrounds and from rural areas in northern Uganda. What would happen to them if Samosource hadn't offered them a job? Ah. Right. So that's the ultimate test of impact is is seeing whether you're creating some sort of benefit that these people wouldn't otherwise find. Describe for the audience just broad strokes, what life was like for somebody before Samosaurus and somebody after working there for five years? Sure. So I'm going to speak in averages. Yeah, um, yeah so, totally. Yeah. yeah. And we actually, um, we collect all this data really rigorously. We have an impact department that um, has reported into finance. So we treat it just like financial data, which should be subject to an audit. And we publish it quarterly on our website. So all the information is out there for anyone to see. So on average, people are coming in at $2.20 a day in household income which means that you are typically living in informal housing. So you're living in a slum. You're informal in a, housing exactly. is like a shack. Like a shack. Um, you don't have you know, access to clean drinking water in your house. You mm. don't have access to sanitation. So you're so you probably well living- or a yeah, outhouse or something. You have to walk out, you know, to yeah. a public restroom. Um, just living in many informal settlements can be a big risk factor for disease because yeah. there are rampant outbreaks of diseases like cholera. Um, if you live in a nicer apartment building or more stable housing, you're not subject to those risks. So yeah. that's that's one of the biggest challenges for our agents is just living in that environment. You're subjected to you know, violence, to disease, to all kinds of things that won't happen if you live in a safer place. What jobs were they doing before? Typically working in the informal economy. So mm. this is mind boggling, but you've got all of these really bright young people leaving secondary school in places like Kenya. And I tell you, they speak the Queen's English. They speak, they probably have better grammar than many Americans. Mm. And it's shocking. You see these really highly qualified young people who are desperate for a chance, who are extremely talented and who after finishing high school have no job because the formal labor market's pretty small. Mm. So they end up literally working in a quarry. We have agents who before working at Samosaurus were breaking big rocks into smaller rocks. Crazy. Or selling 
things by the side of the road. Or one of our agents, you know, used to brew this local kind of moonshine called Chang'a, which I thought was kind of a cute story, except that people, he told me, drink that kind of toxic moonshine to forget themselves. Right. So like that's what people are doing to earn a dollar a day or two dollars a day. And people who could easily be employed doing a range of other things. It's just a waste of human talent. You know, Mm. we spend so much energy trying to find rare earth minerals and, you know, mining or going and exploring Mars. But I feel like the biggest untapped resource in the world is the brain power at the bottom of the economic pyramid that we are not connecting to the global economy. And life after? Huge difference. So on average, and this is data that applies historically to all of our workers. So when you average out the numbers, on average, people move um, over 400% over their baseline income, Mm. and they stay at that higher income even three years after they leave Samasource. Oh, wow. So even if they leave us to go get another job in a place like Nairobi, um, they're typically earning much higher wages. And this is really different from what you might see in like an agricultural work program where you're training someone to increase her farm yields, right? Mm. Um, Typically, you see like after the intervention, you see the income go back down because you're not connecting them to like a bigger global market. The beauty of digital work is that once you show people that there's all these things they can do remotely, they start finding their own work on platforms like Upwork. I was about to say, we, we found an Egyptian person on Upwork, speaks English, incredibly well. And we have people in Toronto. So like as an organization, our tiny little organization, we're doing data normalization stuff. We have happened to have somebody in Egypt. I think they get paid seven or eight bucks an hour. And so it's, it's very interesting. It's like, you know, from San Francisco to Toronto to there, it's like you could just half the salaries, but the cost of living is like, you know, totally. even more. Uh, oh, by the way, the company I was talking about before was Jeremy uh, from Andela. Yes. Andel is in uh, Lagos, Nairobi, mm-hmm. Kampala, Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda. Yes. We know them. Yeah. They focus on hiring. Uh, they don't focus on hiring low-income people. They focus right. on hiring sort of the cream of the crop talent, which I think is, right. is also a really important thing to do. Sure. Um, our challenge, you know, our focus always from the beginning has been how do we provide jobs for those people who typically get overlooked? They don't mm. get the Andela jobs, right? Um, right? And because they're coming in from very low-income backgrounds and, you know, would normally be continuing to do informal work. What's the politics like there? And how um, much does that play a role into what you do? Well, touch wood, <laughs> but the region has been really stable for oh, several years now. <laughs> and um, I think the Kenyan government has maybe taken the opportunity of uh, the U.S. government kind of moving in a bad direction, yeah. actually, <laughs> to say, well, hey, like, let's be progressive. They just banned plastic bags this year. Oh, wow. Um, I, uh, I'm i a huge... Um, I'm very passionate about conservation and I yeah. love spending time in nature. And I think uh, the Kenyan society has done an incredible job of keeping beaches clean and plastic free. I mean, it's 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 very inspiring what this relatively small nation has been able to do. On top of that, the government's been really tech forward. They had a, a 2020 plan when I started Samasaurus that was all about how technology would be creating jobs in Kenya by 2020. And they had all of these different, you know, people in government working on it. They hired the former head of Google East Africa to be Mm -hmm. the IT minister in the country, which I think is a great sign. Um, So we've never had any challenges with the government there. And I think people understand that the future of work in Africa is digital. 
And that much like Africa has completely leapfrogged over traditional sectors like banking, like no one ever walks into a bank branch in Kenya, you can do all of your banking on your mobile phone. It wouldn't even right. occur to people to do that, right? And these are people who never had a desktop computer in all likelihood. Totally. They just went to phones. Straight to phones, right? Straight to phones. Um, yeah. Same thing's happening with energy. Instead of waiting for grid power to roll out, people are using distributed energy systems, right? Have, yeah, they have wind turbines and solar exactly. and... Solar with with water, there's like local, you know, desalination plants that are getting started. So I think there's a, a whole different mindset um, mm. there around technology. And I think people are used to um, kind of leapfrogging over the traditional development path of the West and Asia. And it's a very exciting time. There is, you mentioned hustle, yeah. you know, um, I'm Indian. So um, <laughs> yeah. I totally understand Indian hustle. I feel like East Africa takes it one level further. Yeah, you know. It's one of the great things about the human spirit is it is pretty universal. <laughs> uh, people want to make a better life for themselves and their kids. And you see it happening in China where middle class is emerging. You see it happening in South America. It obviously happened in America when people came here as immigrants. And it's going to happen there as well. And the Chinese recognize this. They're super engaged on the continent, correct? Hugely engaged. I mean, every major infrastructure project feels like it's funded by Chinese money. Every road, every yep. bridge. Yeah. My hope in East Africa is that the development path is different than what it's looked like in the West or in Asia. Um, I think there's a really strong sense that sustainability and conservation are critical. Like mm. Kenya whole houses some of the biggest populations of, of you know, game animals like yeah. lions and giraffes. And unlike in South Africa where you can go and, and still shoot these animals as a trophy hunter, <sighs> which is insane. <laughs> Kenya has said, you're not going to shoot our animals. So it's totally really? illegal. You can't shoot any game animals in Kenya, Lord, which I think is amazing. Every time I see one of these like just disturbed individuals holding a lion up at, or a giraffe and they're sitting there with their gun and they're super proud that they murdered a lion and posting it on Instagram. And posting it on Instagram. <laughs> it's just like, what is, it's literally like a mental illness, like this beautiful creature. It's not like you needed the meat or food to survive. Like I understand like, you know, people may need to eat or something. It's a whole or different use case. the lion is like, you know, killing their cattle because they're dependent on the cattle for livelihood, but this is just vanity. <laughs> it's literally like some dystopian, crazy Black Mirror episode that if you didn't have this whatever legacy of, you know, people from, I guess, England who went down there to go big game hunting or whatever, or now Americans are into it and just, I'm just looking at it like, wow. And they, they pay these huge sums to murder an innocent lion who's like been on this range for whatever, 20 or 30 years, and they, they auction off the murder of these I would like to take these individuals <laughs> and I would like to put them. This is my this is my Black Mirror episode I'm writing for next season. <laughs> these same people, a crazy billionaire, creates his own uh, game. Game park. Where game you get to park. shoot these people. <laughs> and he gets all these hunters together and he gives them all guns, puts them out in the middle of nowhere. They wake up. There's 50 of them. And the 50 of them wake up. And they're like, why are we here? And they're like, oh, I, I've been here before. I'm a game hunter. Oh, you're a game hunter? Oh, yeah. What have you got? And they all like sh start sharing what they've done and they're trying to figure out why they're there. And then all of a sudden the guns start going off and they realize they have no ammunition and they're just being shot by like, you know, for sport. It'd be a great Black Mirror episode. I it think. is such a Black Mirror episode. But I feel the sad thing is that like a lot of the, these dystopian future movies were actually like Elysium was another one. We're actually living Elysium today, right? And we are in many ways like living this yeah. Black Mirror episode. Well, 
those game hunters aren't getting sh- aren't getting shot, but like yet. yet. Um, but it's it's so disturbing, and I have to say, like it is to me, it is so hopeful to see this again, relatively small country with very few of the resources that we have here in the U.S. fighting against that. Mm. Um, Kenya set up a whole conservancy model for long-term conservation of wild land. Um, there's a whole local conservation movement, so it's not just like you know white Westerners who've initiated this. There's a lot of uh local Kenyans who are huge conservationists. Um, so I'm, I'm impressed with what the, what the it's region is It's going to happen in China, too. I think you're starting to, the middle class there is starting to realize that they're all going to die two years, three years earlier than they're supposed to because of the, you know, conditions pollution. in the water or pollution yeah. and air. And they're just not going to have it. They're going to revolt. If there's a civil war in China, which is, I put a 20 or 30% chance of, I think it's going to be not over jobs. I mean, that's possible. I think it's going to be over the environment. Resources, totally. People are just going to be like, this is enough. Like, I want to wake up and not have to, like, face the smog when we get back. I want to hear about your other business (laughs) and your new book, Give Work, when we get back on This Week in Startups. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 20,000 classes in business, marketing, tech, and design. Anyone can be creative and apply that to anything, whether it's programming or design, whether you're trying to deepen your skills as a professional or you want to get your side hustle going, Skillshare can keep you learning and thriving. And I use it as a founder myself. And for founders, this is the place you want to go. You need to have these skills. And even if you're going to have somebody on your team doing your growth marketing or help you building out your social media or doing design, you still want to have that basic knowledge yourself so that you can communicate with your team members in their own vertical. Get yourself up to speed. Even if you're just getting up to 60, 70, 80% knowledge, you can do that so quickly on Skillshare and then maybe refine it, get yourself to 90%, even 100% proficiency in things that you don't have to do day to day. But those are the great founders I find. The founders I found who can learn new skills are the ones who go the furthest and Skillshare is going to help you do that. And you can listen to all kinds of different classes, including Albert from Union Square Ventures doing one on how to start a startup, ideas to innovation. Uh, you got Neil from Warby Parker doing how to build a social mission-driven brand. You've got the founders of Away uh, using coaching and questions to grow their business. Founder Institute talking about managing attention. And of course, my pal Gary Vaynerchuk uh, doing social media strategy in a noisy world. So many different classes for you to level up and to refine your game so you can get out there and compete in the startup arena. So join millions of students learning on Skillshare today with a special offer that's only for our This Week in Startups listeners. You can get two months of Skillshare for just 99, not dollars, cents. You heard me right. Two months, not for $99, for 99 cents. I think you can find 99 cents in the couch you're sitting on right now. Go ahead and get those two months free. Those two months, not free. You gotta pay the 99 cents by going to Skillshare.com slash twist. Once again, Skillshare.com slash twist, Skillshare.com slash T-W-I-S-T. Get in there, get those two months, and start getting better at the job of being a founder. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis, and my guest today, Lila Jana. Not Layla, not Lily, Lila. That's right. You can follow her on all the social medias um, and LinkedIn. She's the author of Give Work, Reversing Poverty One Job at a Time. This is the story of creating Samosaurus, I guess. 
Yeah. And it's also um, some recommendations about what we might do to extend some of these principles to job creation here in the U.S. Ah. We have a domestic program called Sama School that we oh. launched a couple years ago. It's the first uh, training program for gig work. So believe it or not, all the job training infrastructure in the U.S., we spend three and a half billion dollars teaching mm. people especially people who've recently become unemployed, how they can get back on their feet and get a job. But most of our training is stuff that is so old school for jobs that are going away, right? Mm. We know that like traditional nine to five jobs are largely disappearing and, and the biggest growth in employment has been in gig work or freelancing, right? Yeah. And yet we don't teach people who are down on their luck or unemployed how they can benefit from this explosion of new opportunity, right? Yeah. So a lot of these job training programs just need to be modernized. And we've started that program a couple of years ago. We've now trained several thousand people in freelancing skills. But there's a chapter on that. And, and there's some ideas for policy that could expand this give work impact sourcing model. It does seem like there needs to be a new category of work. Because we have this very broken system where you either are a full-time employee or you're a contractor. And the contractors basically have total freedom and very little rights. Like zero rights. Like, like zero rights. You can rights. discriminate on the basis of gender, sexual orientation, and religion for contractors. Really? They're not subject to U.S. anti-discrimination uh, laws, right. which is insanity. Like, Yeah, that's weird. I wasn't even aware of that. It, and I don't think most Americans are aware of that at all. And then you have full-time work, which a lot of people don't want to have to drag themselves into an office based on what time an employer tells them to be there or how many hours. And you you have like this group of people who wants to apply full-time standards to contract work and people who want contract flexibility at full-time work. It feels like there needs to be something in between. Totally. We need to rewrite the way a lot of these rules, rules were written at a totally different time, right? Mm -hmm. When like there was no freelancing work, you didn't have technology to mediate jobs the way that you do now, right? And so we had to enshrine a lot of very uh, formal systems and procedures in the, in the world of work. And I think now there's a lot more interest on the part of workers to have more flexibility, um, but we haven't written the rules for that. Yeah, I was, I was getting trolled all over Twitter just the last couple of weeks. Obviously, I was an investor in Uber and these like folks, anytime they have like some beef with Uber, they like CC me, Chris Saka, you know, Cyan Bannister. It's just like really we're you like- You must get a lot of email. <laughs> just, but it's, it's also the like the sort of Twitter trolling. And I'm like, okay, listen, you're, if you count the downtime, the hourly rate- is going to be half of if you don't count the downtime. Do you realize if some people might want to do like two jobs, do two airport jobs, then pick their kids up from school, take an hour off or 45 minutes off, then do two more. If you force everybody to be hourly, then Lyft or Uber or Postmates are going to have, you know, these shift workers. The shift workers are going to get bottom pay because they're going to have to average it out all the downtime. Mm -hmm. And then they're not going to be able to have like this on demand where you have double the number of drivers on Friday, Saturday nights. So you can totally. pick whichever one you want, but just know that you're going to actually eliminate jobs if you, you know, force all these to be full-time jobs because they're not. They're not. Yeah. I think these are all um, kind of roundabout ways to attack the central issue, which is that I think we have to have a floor in the U.S. for yeah. income. We have to understand that like, whether you call it a, a universal basic income or whether it's some form of earned income you know, tax credits, you yeah. have to ensure that no one lives below a certain floor. And where the 
richest country in the world, we can afford to do that, right? Yeah. Um, and and I think we also need some sort of different system for healthcare because if healthcare is tied to a job and that model was written back when everyone had full-time nine-to-five jobs, that doesn't apply anymore, right? And yeah. so if you're working 10 hours a week, should your employer really be responsible for your full healthcare benefits? Probably not, right? There's probably a better system that makes more sense given yeah. the needs of the new economy. It makes no sense too. Like it creates this real... I think negative uh, unintended consequence with employers and employees where you have employees who are like, I've got three kids. I need to have this health insurance is awesome at this company. I need to stay here, even though I don't want to be here. Yeah. And they have employers who are like, this person's not working out, but they got three kids. I really don't want to let them go. And they have a problem with their health care. And then every year the employer is put in this position of, oh, the health care costs are going up. I got to cut some stuff. Oh, you know, and it just it takes away the dignity of the individual. Like, just make it a national system. Totally. Let Not people... tied to who, who you happen to work for. It makes no sense. In, in so many other countries, I just think we're, we're ridiculous. What's the state in <laughs> Africa, I wonder, in the different countries there? Interestingly, Obviously because... Obviously, it ranges, yeah. yeah because, because countries have so much less money, yeah. right? That you, you don't have a lot of, you know, subsidized health care. Right? It's not even their expectation. And so at Sama, we actually provide health benefits. That's mm -hmm. a big reason why the job is valuable. Um, but eventually, the system should be that, you know, people earn enough money that they're taxed, and those taxes go into a system, and that money gets out allocated to pay for health care for people. They also pay for their own health care. So they're consumers, right? So they actually, yep. if somebody's charging too much, they'll be like, well, I'm not going to come. So the In doctor fact, has to think about that. Yeah. It's, well, it's a huge challenge in East Africa. Most people don't realize this, but but poor people pay disproportionately for health care, especially you know, mm. in, in developing countries. In, in Uganda, you know, we hear stories all the time of people our driver, you know, told me that his his young daughter died of, of pneumonia because he took her to the public hospital and there was no doctor attending mm. because there are, is such a shortage in these hospitals and and his little girl, you know, died <sighs> of, of pneumonia, something that is so treatable in, yeah. you know, 2018. So God. these sorts of totally avoidable tragedies happen due to poverty. Mm. And that is exactly why I started Sama to be able to address that. Yeah. Um, and you also started a... I don't know if it's a side hustle or an equal uh, company, but LXMI, tell us about that. What is Luxme, this? yeah. Luxme. So Luxme is named after the Hindu goddess of beauty, Lakshmi. Okay. And we became the first fair trade brand to launch nationwide at Sephora oh, in wow. late 2016. Congratulations. Um, thanks. It sounds like it has absolutely nothing to do with Samasource. Um, no, I'm getting it. Yeah. You're <laughs> so sourcing we, this stuff. Exactly, in a way that gives work. So right. I came across this rare ingredient that's a, a rare subspecies of um, shea butter called nilotica in mm. northern Uganda. Right. I thought it was incredible. I compared it to what I was previously slathering on my on my face, which was this like duty-free skin cream, which was full of toxic chemicals like dimethicone Oof. and parabens and all sorts of bad stuff. And I thought, why is this beautiful thing that is picked by local women in a way that gives them wages, not available to me at duty-free stores or at luxury retailers like Sephora. Why am I buying toxic crap when I could be buying something that's not just good for my skin, but good for the world? Mm. And um, I firmly believe that luxury products should damn well do some good in the world if yeah. you're paying that margin. Sure. Shouldn't just be lining the pocket. So, so this is direct to consumer company. Exactly. So we launched in retail. We learned. Oh no, a lot. you launched in retail, got it. Yes. I was very quickly schooled right. <laughs> about why why DTC brands are really taking off. It's very hard to launch in retail with the capital mm -hmm. that we raised. And um we decided well, you gotta pay to pay people off for shelf space and stuff like that. Or? It's so expensive. The margins mm -hmm. you pay to retailers are just like ginormous. 
unconscionable. <laughs> Two thirds or sixty percent. I mean, yeah, like, half like over something. over half, and and so kind of hard to make a living. Really hard to make a living, and again, our our thesis is that you know, in the internet age, we should be able to pay living wages for raw ingredients that we are getting from developing yeah. countries, and also offer a good product at a competitive price to the consumer. So I think the only cost? way to do that, uh, a, um, a tin of it or whatever. Uh, so we sell the pure nilotica melt for twenty eight dollars in a tube. Um, and $48 in a jar. And then we have various products that we've formulated with the melt. Wow. And um, the beauty of all of the products is that they're literally safe enough to eat. In fact, I to get a, a deal on QVC, I actually ate the product <laughs> and I made it with the producers. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's commitment. <laughs> totally. And well, it's actually, it's a it's a single ingredient. Our top product is called Pure Nilotica Melt. It's literally that nut that you see on the left. It's 50 mm. of those nuts that have been cold pressed in a jar. Oh. You could slather it on your baby. You could eat it. I put it in smoothies sometimes. You can Perfect. make truffles with it. So it's like, nice. a, it's like coconut oil, but but better. Nice. Reminds me of RX Bar, uh, which puts the like on the label three egg whites, exactly. two dates, a banana, whatever is in it. Um, Super simple, and people are demanding that transparency. I think, especially out of you know what they're slathering all over their bodies and faces every day. Yeah, it's and these micro brands are becoming a thing. We we see it a lot uh, in our accelerator, like people applying with micro brands. And mm-hmm. You're like, oh, you're making that? That's very cute. And they're like, yeah, I've got eight hundred thousand in revenue. I'm like, what year is this? It's like, oh, it's our second year. Yeah, I'm like. How do you get to 800? Oh, yeah, we have 6% margin. We go direct to consumer. Yeah. We've, you know, we have this many yeah. repeat customers. You're like, wow, there really is something to this. There really is. It's so yeah. much easier. And with with the power of like Facebook and Instagram ads and and just word of mouth, um, we've been able to build. We actually tripled this year. Oh, right. And so now um, I'm finding it very difficult to run two companies. I don't know how Elon does it. <laughs> well, he's exhausted, um, as you can tell. I think so. And I also... He's freely admitted, I am exhausted. <laughs> I think it, it's maybe harder if you're not a billionaire or a hundred millionaire. It's just hard. It seems so. Um, I mean, having a plane helps, but not yeah. that much. Honestly, yeah. like Elon and I are very good friends. Like, he's exhausted. I mean, I, really? every time I see him, I'm just like, dude, you got to get some sleep. Like, I really think it's a fine thing to do in the short term if you're like you know, like a really industrious person, but long-term, you know, eventually you're just going to burn out and you start with Steve Jobs and, you totally. know, uh, you'll see, you see it with Elon now, he, he's freely admitted it. And then, you know, I guess Jack Dorsey's doing it as well, you know, at Twitter and Square. And I think most people would say like, Square's doing great, but I don't know if Twitter is doing as good as it should be. It's not optimal. And you always feel mm. it's like, I feel like I'm cheating on one business or the other. For sure. <laughs> yeah, no, when you're at one, you're <laughs> like, oh, I kind of should be over here. <laughs> totally. And, and Where were like, you last there's night? <laughs> never a good situation. Even if you're like, I mean, I, I work nonstop and I don't really have much of a, you know, social life. I yeah. really like to do like sports. I like, I'm into kite surfing. Um, and I basically just do that and I work. <laughs> you're good at that kite surfing too. So I'm okay at it. I think being good is how a many days did it take you to get up on the board? Let's talk about this for a sec because it took Ooh, me. I'll tell you know, after you tell me. Maybe like it took me like a week of consecutive kiting to get it. Got it. And I'm not really a natural at all. It like got took it. me a long time to learn how to ride a bike. Yeah, so. I got up like on the third day of doing it, and then smashed my face into the water at Necker Island, and it was the most glorious like nine seconds of my life. And I've wanted to do it ever since. I just haven't. Out. But I hear here in the Bay, you can do it in Almeida or something. Totally. Right you can do it under the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, I heard that's super field. dangerous. I actually got rescued there last summer. Um, You're not the only one. My kite line broke and it was like a total, as we call. As Has we call anybody ever died years. over there? Yeah, actually, sadly, someone did die. 
Um, they got pulled out to sea? Or? This year. I think they uh, the person drowned. Mm. Uh, it's unclear whether they may, maybe had a heart attack, but it is, uh. um, as I, I was once rescued by Baywatch in Malibu, um, and they waited 45 minutes before they picked me up on a jet ski, and I was like, well, didn't you guys see me from the lifeguard tower? And he's like, well, we like to remind people that this is an extreme sport, and kind of smiled slightly. <laughs> so, <laughs> they just leave you out there for a while to exactly. do your penance. But I think part of the reason it's such great training as an entrepreneur is it, it it's so instructive. I've been endlessly humbled by this sport, and just when I feel like I'm finally getting it, and I like, you know, someone's like holding a camera, and I'm posing for the camera and doing a jump, like I will like land totally in the wrong way, and like pull my shoulder and like, <laughs> look like a total idiot and it's what it's what god intended probably <laughs> for no, it to be humbling don't understand exactly how complex it is like the first two or three days they have you on the land just trying to hold whatever the i don't know if it's a 15 foot kite or how wide are these kites they gotta be 15 feet 12 feet they're yeah they're in meters like i usually yeah. kite with a seven meter here yeah they're, they're pretty large they're like small paragliders yeah and so yeah. when you're holding it and the wind kicks up you're going to get dragged, and if you your instinct is to pull the bar, yeah, you power which, the kite, which powers the kite. Yeah. So pulling the bar, you think, oh, I'm going to get stable. No, it's like hitting the gas pedal. You're going to jump. You're going to jump and go flying. So yeah. I'm doing this at Necker Island, and somebody who's super light and like 90 pounds, she panics. She pulls the bar, and she got dragged on her face. In you know across the sand, then into the water, and it was not pretty. I mean, she was scraped up. Yeah, (laughs) it was not pretty. But then, once you get, then you have to get in the water, and you have to learn how to balance on the board. Oh, there you are. Oh, Oh, here, play. Here we go. Whoa, that's you. Yeah, that's me. That was whoa. That's wait a second. They're speeding that up. That's not actual speed, is it? That is. uh, I think that's fast forwarded. That's fast forwarded. Yeah. Oh, there you go. You just got whacked. I was just there last. uh, Oh no, you're going to land. Oh, there you go. I'm coming to land. I'm just landing. I didn't want to so impressive. surfboard. Thanks. Well, I'm learning to hydrofoil now, which is like Okay, wait, wait. What's that so compared awesome. to So that is um when you put basically a little airplane looking thing under oh, the yes. under the board. I know and that. the plane when the when the board picks up speed generates lift in the water. And then you're basically it lifts you up out of the water. You're like ooh. hoverboarding. It looks like hoverboarding. Yeah, no, I've seen people doing that. It's incredible. You the go faster, it, right? You go faster because there's less friction because the only thing touching the water is this like tiny little bit of the mast. Ooh. And then I'm really interested in aerodynamics. I'm getting my pilot's license right now, actually, um, so that one day I can hopefully fly my own little bush plane in Africa. Yeah. That's the dream. Um, definitely you're not like the You're like a character on that... Silicon Valley right now. You understand <laughs> that, right? Okay, but I'm like the lowbrow version of that character because I'm not going to be flying a jet i'll be flying like a cessna 172 pilot kiteboarding author (laughs) (laughs) non-profit own beauty line and no social life whatsoever all you need to do is get a door (laughs) with gull wings you just need to get like a mclaren and then you'll be a total i drive a beat up mini cooper i think it's like a 2011 mini so i had the first year of the mini cooper too it's it's a great car it's a great little car people don't understand the mini cooper is the ultimate hack it is the it is a bmw for fifteen thousand dollars less that, that you can park anywhere. That you can park anywhere. And, and it's so zippy it. zippy. It's true. You just have to be careful when you park. Yeah. You have to learn that you don't park all the way into the parking space. You leave the extra space in the parking space in front of your car. Do you know this? No. Why is that? Okay. So what happened was when Mini Coopers first came out, they kept getting rear-ended in parking spaces because they only take up 60% of the parking space. Oh, yeah. So they would be, you know, fully up to the... Line. You know, the line or wherever that like cement thing is. And people would come whipping around in a 
parking oh, garage and yeah. they would think it was an open spot. They'd whip in and they would just whack the back of a Mini Cooper. Oh, wow. So all the Mini Coopers started to have it to park so that the back yeah. of the car is where the other cars are backed up. Just a little pro tip. So for make mini sure people can see the junk in your trunk. They can see the junk you, in your trunk. They know that there's a car the there mini. and they're not going to run you over. Good to know. Well, my mine is so beat up anyway that it wouldn't matter. So... So wait, what are you going to do? You're going to go, uh, which company are you going to go work for? You have, you're sure you're figuring that out now? Um, many investors are asking me the same <laughs> question. <laughs> wow. So I will make it uncomfortable. But uh, um, I think, well, yeah. Sama is a, is a much larger enterprise. Uh. Luxme is a small team and we've been kind of operating that way for a while. So um, I think Luxme is going to continue to grow. But where most of my background and knowledge and networks are is, mm. is much more on the tech side. Mm. So um, that's probably what I'm going to be leaning a lot into next year. And with Luxme, we tripled this year. I think we can keep growing the company at that pace, yeah. but I'm definitely not like a brilliant beauty business guru um and i'll continue to be the face and kind yeah, of yeah that's i mean chief sourcing officer for the brand get you know what i i believe in like getting a president for your organization training them up totally and then if you feel comfortable you can hand them the controls that is the ultimate dream and it would make my life a million times better so and you got reed hoffman as an investor i do he's amazing he's like an unlikely you know um skincare luxury skincare brand investor wow yeah i think he has great skin don't get me wrong but no, i don't think right that's in his the first wheelhouse. thing you think of when you think yeah. of reed hoffman yeah. um but i think what he's... are you talking about he was one of the angel investors in dove <laughs> <laughs> there you go A little known um but he's like in many ways i think the ethical voice of silicon valley he is and i think he is really passionate about ideas like give work and mm. the idea that um our mission at luxme is beauty for humanity that you can use like luxury skincare products to do good through the supply mm. chain so yeah just don't make it a non-profit again it's a for-profit and good. this year we actually became profitable but at a very uh, it's a very such very a narrow great moment when like <laughs> the amount of cash going down it's like wait a second we have more cash this month than last month what yeah yeah did What's we do happening? the numbers right i have like three startups like this and i'm like okay the you have more cash than you had last month i'm like oh you're gonna raise money they're like why would i do that i'm like rock i mean com was like that they wow. they basically skipped their series a and series b basically and just went right dream. to series c we just got a credit line so my hope is that we can finance things on credit and i i do think contrary to a lot of the advice we hear in silicon valley which is like grow 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 forget about profitability and unit economics and you can worry about that stuff later out of necessity and i actually think a lot of um businesses that are non-traditional in some way, maybe they have a founder who's had a tough time raising money as I did, or maybe they're in an unusual category and they can't attract investment. In many ways, it's a gift because it forces you to be disciplined. Of course, you, you know, like a great art has constraint. If you have a giant wall and you ask somebody to paint on the wall, they're not going to come up with something great, but you give them a small canvas. That's a really good point. And they only have two of them. You know, I got, oh, I got to be yeah. careful with my canvases. I don't have that many. And then you take away almost all the paints. <laughs> yeah. Just think, like, we're literally sending people onto these hydrofoils and we're like, yep, go onto the Bay, go onto the Golden Gate Bridge. And it's like, yeah, goodbye. That's true. You're going to just get dragged out to sea. It's, it's going to be over for you. And if you don't have the unit economics right, you don't have your technique right, you really got to understand how to run these things. Constraints create discipline. And mm. I think especially as like a very typical entrepreneur with millions of ideas, discipline is extremely helpful and teaching for me. So I, I talked to my friends who are directors and one of them likes to shoot on film. And he's like, mm -hmm. you know what? When you're shooting on that digital bullshit, everybody's like loosey goosey. I take another take. When we put the film in the camera. So true. Everybody is focused because they know we have a certain amount of film that shit's expensive. 
you know, everything matters. And since that time, now that everything's digital, like, oh, fix that in post. And they're like, oh, yeah, let's take this person's mustache, like Superman's mustache off in post. It looks terrible. It's so true. There's an element of craft, which is removed when you remove the constraints. Yeah. Right? And, and the finest artists and I think the finest creators are, I think, partly as good as they are because they operated in those environments where they didn't have unlimited resources. So I hope that applies to entrepreneurs too, because but in that case, I, I, both companies will be successful. We've been so resource constrained. It's just, no, it's, it's, um, it's, just, it's super important for the people listening to this podcast to understand this. Like if you think about the Beatles or Dire Straits or the Rolling Stones, like these people played in pubs and they had to play to like drunk audiences and whatever sound that could come out of those instruments to keep those people entertained kept them from getting bottles thrown at them, right? And if they couldn't play it live, they couldn't lay it down on an album. Now you have all these artists who like, they can't sing this. They're, they're lip syncing. Like they can't sing what, they can't play an instrument. They're, it's just, they're just pretty faces. Everything's synthesized. Yeah. Yeah. There's right. this, uh, oh, sorry. No, go I was, ahead. I was going to add, there's this, um, this concept called jugad in India, it's a Hindi word, which means essentially doing more with less. It's like the yeah. image of like the guy getting his stuff to market on like a one wheeled, you know, cart that he's put together himself, but he's managing to make it yeah. all work, right? And it's like stuck together with duct tape. Um, I really feel like that is such an apt metaphor Wait, for, for startups. Jugad. Jugad. J-U-G-A-A-D. And that is like a core value at Sama because from the beginning, we've just had to do more with less. We've had to bootstrap. And um, it's such a trope in startup world to talk about bootstrapping. But I really do feel like the discipline of having less just forces you to be creative. And it also strips away everything that's not absolutely mission critical yeah. for getting to the next stage. Um, so for me, it's been a very helpful teacher. And I hope now that we have a little bit more funding and fewer constraints, we'll still have that same discipline. That's the magic is if you can keep it going, even once your company has reached scale and success. It requires a great leader because you have to be able to tell everybody, I know that you see that bank balance and you want to deploy it. <laughs> and you have like 100 great ideas. And now there is no reason why we can't pursue 30 of them. Except we're going to do each one 3% as well as if we just focused on the thing that got us here. So sure, let's stick sure. to what got us here and let's do it better. Yeah. Right? Like. That's the magic. Well, yeah. maybe 10 years later in your, <laughs> on your 20th anniversary, I'll come back and I'll have a yeah, better Yeah, 20th anniversary of Sam Resource and 20th <laughs> anniversary of this week in Sam All right, listen. Uh, if, well, I don't know what you're looking for. You, you're hiring now or you're hiring in Africa. We're hiring here in the U.S. as oh, well um, for Samasaurus. We're doing a, a big um, round of hiring Great. now and in January oh. as we close this funding. And then um, the next step for us is scale. So we are, I think, one of the leading firms doing this in the automotive industry for very precise, high-quality tagging that mm. really can't be done in the crowd. Um, and the next step for us is we're, we just launched a 3D tool in our product. So you can now tag um, LiDAR sensor data, which mm. is really cool. It's like looks like total gob gobbledygook on a screen. It's really yeah. difficult to see, like, how could you determine that that's a car? But our agents are really good at it, and that's very valuable in the market. Um, and now we're looking at other applications of this technology. Mm, but the idea that, sweet. you know, people are moving out of poverty in Africa by training technologies of the future is, I think, just such a cool concept. <laughs> it is really interesting how all of a sudden the world caught up with your vision. I see this happen over and over again with founders. Like they have some crazy vision, like calm, you know, like with Alex, he's like, no meditation, people are going to need it. And it's like in 2000, 
whatever, 10 people were like, yeah, whatever. Obama's totally. president's great. Gangbusters economy's <laughs> doing great. And it's like, all of a sudden Trump precious. wins and people are like Losing having their panic minds. attacks yeah. and they're listening to Rachel Maddow tell them the world's about to end. And, you know, tonight's been a very big news night. I got to get my Rachel Maddow invitation going, Jackie. I'm going to work so on that. Good. She's so good. You kind of have like the hair. I got the hair. Almost. I would say hair. we have a very similar look, Rachel Maddow and I. I'm sorry, Rachel. But yeah, she. I just like how she's like, on what was supposed to be, we just took everything we had tonight and we threw it away because it's a breaking news night. There's a lot to get through. We have to get through this together. And she's just in a perpetual state of being flabbergasted totally. and indignant and just upset that like this is occurring and that she has to talk about it totally. she's just like okay adam schiff is gonna be on the program again to tell us exactly how insane this is yeah exactly as if the last shit is breaking and burning <laughs> before our eyes i can't wait until the news shifts like away from just like the constant stream of like just indignation <laughs> yeah and and towards like i launched the book last year and my publisher was saying you know we we had not anticipated this election outcome and unfortunately it's a very tough time to talk about global poverty you know because there's like yeah. so many other fires burning literally across the country so it, i was thinking about this exact thing the other night i was like what did what was it like to watch the news and read the newspaper before Trump was president? Before this insanity was eating the entire news cycle where like the stock market is like trade war with China, it's over. And then the next day it's like no trade war with China. Yeah. <laughs> up 10, we're up 10% this week. And I'm just like the next week it's like up. We, we arrested the CFO of Huawei. It's over. It's going to be a global nuclear war. It's like, no, nah, it's cool. We're going to give her back. No. Oh, wait. Some guy from Canada is now arrested in China. I'm like, I kind of feel like any one of these threads is the one before World War Three. It feels like almost any one of these threads is the one that in the history books are like, yeah, and then... The CFO, who was the daughter of this person in China, got arrested, and this person in Canada got arrested, and then Trump said this, and then boom, World War III. I feel like <laughs> politically, there's a chance of things totally turning around really soon. But the one area where I'm not confident about that at all, and where all climate scientists seem to agree, is like we've totally effed up the planet in such <sighs> a major way. And that is going to be very hard to recover from, no matter who comes into power next. Yeah, that um, is the World War Three. It's like we're not fighting against anybody except Mother Earth. It's like that's that's that is the war we've the chosen. War that is the war we've chosen, and that is like ten times worse than any dystopian Black Mirror future. Think about um, it. Like so, if you're going to choose a hill to die on, it's destroying the planet and then having the planet just war back with wildfires and tsunamis. Totally. <laughs> so please tell Elon that <laughs> while we love his quest to get to Mars, he can use his prowess to <laughs> save the current planet that we well, the only if, planet that if we have <laughs> hillary won we would be in the paris accord we would be moving all of these standards to higher you know uh mileage we would be moving so much further and then we have this we would have deployed troops to fight the california wildfires instead of making a stunt at the border a number of things would have probably been different it's bonkers like yeah literally the people who we need to bring to this country to help us like maintain like just the basic literal picking of the food in the fields the people who are coming here to take the jobs americans are Don't far from wanting to take yeah and they want to work 60 hours a week just for the chance to have what we take for granted and those are the people we choose to punish 
what a bizarre, sadistic yeah. place for us to find. It's really good for, I think, the civil discourse for us to realize how easily this democracy could be just knocked off balance. Like, I just grew up thinking this could never happen. Like, we're just on the, we're good. America's awesome. However, on the flip side, the one good thing is like seeing all of these young women and people of color take the house in the last cycle. And like, oh, yeah. I am just like, like Ocasio came out of nowhere. And like, I just, I saw this tweet yeah. about her, um, this great photograph of her winning second place in the Intel science and engineering fair. And I was like a big math nerd and science nerd in, in high school and competed in that fair. And the idea that like someone who was like me, who's like yeah. a young brown woman who came here with nothing and like did well in public school that um that she could rise so quickly to a position of power i think is a testament to how frustrated people are and i do think politically things are going to change really quickly the problem is no matter what we do politically we've got to take dramatic climate action so that's um that's the next thing i've been thinking about a lot and and actually part of i didn't tell you this but but part of the thesis of luxme is that by creating an incentive to keep wild lands alive. We source these ingredients through sustainable wild uh, collection techniques. So if you can show people that they can make more money keeping parts of the Amazon alive because you can make a lot of money sourcing rare botanicals from, you know, yeah. these plants rather than selling the land to the local cattle form farmer to chop it down and graze cattle or selling the land, you know, to wood, a mining yeah. company, right, or wood. And so so people don't even realize that there's so much economic value yeah. in wilderness and nature. And I think that's, you know, one powerful solution is to use capitalism and to use market forces to promote conservation. I was talking to a founder on Reddit and He's like, am I an entrepreneur or not? I go foraging in Canada and I get like 30 pounds of morels and then I sell them for $10, $20 each and I made $600. Am I an entrepreneur? I'm like, totally. You're the greatest entrepreneur of all time. Get Genius. five people, go back to the forest. Your cost <laughs> of goods is zero. Don't tell anybody. Bring them there with like ski masks on yeah. and then go get five, you know, 100 pounds of morels. And it's to your point, like, just take the morels, leave everything else. Like the morels will grow back. Like, Well, and then there's an incentive to ensure that there's enough morels for the next season. So I think yeah. if you combine that with like some sort of conservation or sustainability practices to make sure that your your primary good is still around next year, um, it's it's so powerful. It's, it's what's been done to save the gorillas, the mountain yeah. gorillas in, in Uganda and Rwanda. They, they charge tourists a lot of money to go and see the gorillas. Tourists are happy to pay, you know, hundreds of dollars for a wildlife permit. Local communities are happy because for the first time, these wild animals are giving them a huge dividend. Right. So they have every interest in making sure that they don't get poached. As opposed and, to what they used to do, chop their hands off and make ashtrays out of them. Uh, for American consumers, too. Like, literally, like, yeah. uh, can you imagine, like, being an American and buying a gorilla hand, hand as an ashtray? As an ashtray. Like, <laughs> yes. are we, it's, it's the, we're the worst people in the world. Like, terrific. But we can also be the best people. I know. We, this is why America's got to get our act together. And we really have to elect a female president. Honestly, like, <laughs> I think men have done enough to destroy. Like, this. It would, I was so hopeful that, like, it was like, oh, we had a black president, now a woman president. Like, the world is trending in the right direction. And then you get this, like, totally sucker punched. Yeah. Don't it's, worry. The pendulum will swing back in the other yeah, direction. Yeah, I think it is going to. Yeah. I think it's going to mobilize people yeah. to realize, like, oh, Anybody can win. It should then, also mobilize the private sector too mm. to like do what government is not doing. You know, like okay, if our government doesn't want to be part of the Paris Agreement, yep. then screw it. As a company, 
let's offset our carbon footprint. Let's like source sustainably. Let's choose fair trade coffee for our lunchrooms. Like we can be the change that, you know. No, if the government's not going to ban plastic, like we banned plastic at our events because we were doing pallets of water bottles. And then one of my investors was like, this is unacceptable, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, Gigi. (laughs) So then I found a company for $1,000 who will put out a water filter with ice cold water or warm water if you're into such things. And... We just were like, here, buy one of these bottles for $2 at cost and then carry your water bottle. And people are doing it. And they're excited about doing it. Yeah. And just think about that. Like, everybody has that moment. Or plastic straws or so many other things. And I feel like this is the exciting thing about this dire political situation we're in is that it's galvanized people to think about, well, if the president's not going to do it, then maybe I have to. Yeah. Maybe that's a really good thing. For sure. All right, listen, I could talk to you all day. (laughs) And we have. (laughs) All right, uh, good luck with Simon Source. If you're looking to work uh, on a great cause in a growing company that's doing important work in the world, Lila's got a job for you. Go uh, check out samasource.org, S-A-M-A, and it means equity, right? Or equality? Equal in Sanskrit. Equal. It's the root word for same. Same. Yeah, I was like, I looked it up and it was like, equanimity, same, similar. Balance. Balance. Very good. All right. We'll see you all next time on This Week in Star Wars. Bye-bye. Bye.